0: Before speaking about John Calvin, um, I'm struck by the polarized, as as Luke kind of gave it to go from the mercerists, which is the depth of trouble, <laughs> and and the basement of everything, and run from that always, to the uh, glory of behold our God. When we were singing that, um, I, I think if uh, if speaking about John Calvin, that would have been a song that would have probably uh, been his life song, holding up the glory of God to people, uh, displayed through the perfection of a son, Jesus redeeming sinners so um, but we do this once a year. We, we have this <clears throat> kind of a biographical sketch a w. Tozer, many of you have known the name he's a pastor was a pastor in the 20th century, particularly in Chicago. He said that um, Next to the Holy Scriptures, the greatest aid to the life of faith may be the Christian biography. And over these years, we've done this. Uh, this is probably the ninth or tenth year we've done it. And we do it for a number of reasons. Number one would be, we think it's scriptural. In Romans 15, 4, Paul speaks about the uh, about the saints of old being examples for our faith to encourage us. We see really the same thing in Hebrews chapter 12 In verses 1 and 2 we read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. We don't think that they're watching us, but their lives are witnessing to us. They're they're testifying to us of the greatness of God. Now, it's our race to run. I don't want you to be John Calvin. You can't be John Calvin. But but the grace of God in his life can speak to us, and the same grace that is uh, resident and available for us in our lives uh, but, but not just that reason, but secondly, I, I want us to see the grace of God at work in the lives of, of these strong saints who were quite flawed, not just so we can be encouraged to do what they did, but that we would also avoid the things that they erred in. Uh, a third reason we do these biographical sketches is because it shows us that God's grace is sufficient in every generation. So God isn't just working in the Middle Ages. He isn't just working in the 20th century. He works in every generation for his glory and for his name. And I want you to see that. As we said today, it is John Calvin. and uh, Most of you have heard of Calvin, perhaps, or Calvinism. Uh, His life is really marked by two two words, I would say, both controversial and influential. Controversial, uh, people then and people now uh, think that he is joyless, judgmental mean-spirited. In his day, there were some that didn't like him enough that they would name their dogs after him. I mean, really had a dislike for the man. In fact, Will Durant, the famous historian, wrote this, not just about his person, but his controversial theology. He wrote this, he says, "...we shall always find it hard to love the man who darkened the soul with the most absurd and blasphemous conception of God in all the long and honored history of nonsense." I mean, he has been a controversial player for 500 years. I think he's been misunderstood greatly. I think he's been maligned in major fashion. But he's definitely influential. Uh, You cannot consider Western culture apart from his influence. Amazing how how his writings, his ideas, have given rise to uh, democracy, to capitalism, to the study of science and specifically to the direction that the Reformation took. Now, when I speak about the Reformation, I'm speaking about that that movement, uh, particularly in Europe in the 16th century, where men were raised up to try to bring reform to the Catholic Church uh, that eventually moved them outside the church. Protestant movement was started, a return, we would argue, to biblical Christianity. And uh, Calvin would have never understood all that has flowed out of his life. His obsession wasn't about doing those things. His obsession was about declaring the glory of God through the person of Christ, relying on the power of God's Spirit. Um, in fact, he, would, he, would, he just wanted to be a pastor. Uh, William Farrell, you'll hear his name later, was a friend, encouraged him to to put his sermons in commentary form on the book of Genesis. And here's what Calvin wrote. He says, As to my observations on Genesis, if the Lord shall grant me longer life and leisure, perhaps I will set myself about the work, although I do not expect to have many hearers. This is my special end and aim, to serve my generation. And for the rest, if I, in my present calling, an occasional opportunity offers itself, I shall endeavor to improve it for those who come after us. That was his intention. I want to serve a people of God, leading them to God. Now, the influence in his life was immediate. By 1562, even before he died, even though in France there are only a few thousand evangelicals, by 1562, and remember, he was converted probably in the early 30s of the 1500s. There were 2,100 congregations in France planet and fueled by pastors, many of whom studied under his hand. So it had a profound impact, over two million evangelicals in France at that time. It was a profound influence. So this is the man, John Calvin. What I'm going to do is give you a quick run through on his life. You don't have to take notes. If you're interested in, in knowing the details and the quotes I have, just email the church office and I'll send you the manuscript. But, but just listen to the, um, the flow of his life, and then we'll draw some timeless truths, I think, that, that can challenge us and direct us and teach us today. So let me give you a run-through of his life. He was born in Ju- July 10, 1509, in Noyon, France, and that's about 60 miles northeast of Paris. And Martin Luther was already 26 years old. In fact, when Calvin was 8 years old, that's when Luther knocked uh, or put the uh, 95 thesis on the door of the um, uh, at Wittenberg on the castle church. Calvin was born into a professional class, received an excellent study. Uh, little is known about the family. They did know he was of high intelligence. By the age of 14, he was enrolled at the University of Paris, studying to be a priest, learning Latin and logic and philosophy. By 17, he had graduated with a Master's of Arts. Uh, there was some falling out between his father. And his mother had died when he was age of five. There was some falling out between the father and the Catholic Church. He was a financial administrator within that church. And uh, father just moved him to another university to study law. And he studied that and graduated in 1532 or 15, uh, with a doctorate in civil law. He spent some time in, in Paris as well studying literature, which is his favorite topic. Now, little is known about his conversion happened somewhere between 1528 and 1532. He, he came under the influence while studying law from the teachings of John Wycliffe and Huss and Martin Luther. And uh, that began to move in his soul to consider. In fact, he calls it a sudden conversion. Calvin, like a lot of the 16th century writers, writes very little about himself. You cannot find a lot of personal uh, descriptions of his life. In, in the commentary to the book of Psalms, we We read this, he says, I was too obstinately devoted to the superstitions of the papacy or the Roman Catholic Church to be easily extracted from some profound and abyss of mire. God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame. Having received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with an intense desire to make progress therein that although I did not altogether leave off other studies, yet I pursued them with less vigor. In other words, I don't think he means sudden as in a kind of a Damascus road experience, but but it's as if armies are sieging a town and finally it falls. In other words, he saw God working on his heart over a long time, and at one point, the whole building just collapsed. Now, while historians are uncertain as to the crisis or experience or situation, he later refers to it as the pains of his soul or conscience, he says this, and we read this in a rebuttal that he makes to a Catholic cardinal, and we'll read about him or hear about him a little bit more. He says, At last my mind, being prepared to give the matter serious attention, I saw as if light had broken in upon me in what a pigsty of air I had wallowed and how polluted and impure I had become. In other words, his his The guilt of his sin before a holy God is what brought him to an awareness of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Quickly he moved with his intelligence and training. Uh, quickly he moved to begin seeking reformation of the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, being back in Paris, it is thought that he had written the lecture given by Nicholas Cop. He was the rector of the University of Paris and he gave a call to the church to reform. Immediately trouble came on these men because of what was called Luther-like leanings in their teaching. And Nicholas Kopp had to immediately escape to Basel, Switzerland. Calvin uh, had to escape at night from his room, lowered down on sheets, dressed as 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 a vine dresser with a hoe over his shoulder sneaking out of Paris. He would later be imprisoned, but he was able to sneak out of Paris at that point in time. And he left France, and he moved over a number of years as an itinerant student and preacher, and he ended up in in Basel, Switzerland, with this Nicholas Kopp. There he would begin his ministry that he thought he was destined for, which is to be a scholar and a writer. Never saw himself as a pastor. And when he was 26, in, in Basel, he wrote his first book, uh, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, that's kind of the, the bulwark of what he wrote um, in terms of what he is known by. It was only six chapters long, actually, and it was really a defense of the Reformation. We now know it at 80 chapters, two massive volumes, but it started out very, very, very small. And um, But when he wrote it, and it was published, because all this took place after the invention of the printing press, well, his... His name was spread quickly. His writings were spread quickly, and he was vaulted into leadership. So he desired desired to end up at Strasbourg as living the life of a scholar. Things would go differently for him. God's providence would act in a way that traveling to Strasbourg, he was rerouted to Geneva because there was war between uh, the King of France and the Emperor of Rome, Charles and Francis, and troop movements were in that direction. So he moved to Geneva just for one night to stay there on his way to Strasbourg. In Geneva, he would then be recognized by this William Farrell, just a lightning rod, a, a, a thunderbolt of preaching. Now Geneva was a republic. It was a city-state. And and they had moved to Protestantism. Remember, all the debates in the Reformation were taking place. So it was a Catholic move to complete Protestantism, and William Farrell was trying to guide the city in the development of the Protestant church. And so they met, and they had an exchange that would change Calvin's direction. I want to read you part of it as it's been recorded. Farrell shouted at Calvin, You are leaving? There is much for you to do here. Calvin said, I'm sorry, I cannot remain any longer than one night. Pharaoh paid no attention with great eloquence. He described the miraculous work of God in the city of Geneva and the need for a man of Calvin's stature and skill to come and teach. Calvin protested, expressing his desire to spend time writing in the safety of some remote city. Pharaoh indignantly shouts, leisure learning when it's a matter of acting. Do you want to desert the reformation of the city? I am at the point of breaking down under the load, and you will deny me your assistance? Calvin said, don't take it as ill will. My health is not the best. I need rest. This is what Pharaoh said. What rest? Nothing except death brings rest to the servants of Christ. Do you dare put your personal interests ahead of the kingdom of God? For the last time, do you want to follow the call of God or not? You are concerned about your rest and your personal interests. Therefore, I proclaim to you... In the name of Almighty God, whose command you defy, upon your works thou shalt be no rest or blessing. Therefore, let God damn your rest, and let God damn your work. That's a guy that shoots straight. <laughs> Calvin says this, A feeling overtook me as bitter as death. It says that a cheek rolled down his cave, a tear rolled down a... His caved-in cheek, and he put his hand out and said, I will obey God. Later, he said, I felt as if God from heaven had laid his mighty hand upon me to stop me in my course, and I was so terror-stricken that I did not continue my journey. He said, God thrust me into the game. So Calvin sets immediately in Geneva to begin preaching through the Pauline epistles. He writes a constitution for the church. He introduced congregational psalm singing. He writes a confession of faith in children's catechism. But in spite of all this initial hard work and high hopes, there's an immediate problem. Of course, you have to remember now, these are magisterial reformers, so they saw the government and the church working together. Well, that's where the battle was that the church wanted authority exercising over the people. Calvin wanted the church to have authority over doctrine and discipline. The state or the magistrates, the leaders, did not want to give that to him. That was a major point of conflict over much of his ministry. Calvin argued that it was the church's responsibility to fence the table, to excommunicate those who are living in open rebellion to God and open sin, and to prevent them from taking the supper. And the state wanted that authority. Well, within two years, Calvin's thrown out of Geneva with William Farrell. So he he heads to Strasbourg, as he originally wanted to, to begin to pick up the life of a scholar. Now, Martin Bucer was another leading reformer in the city, had known about Calvin, and he implored Calvin in Farrell-like fashion to begin taking a church, and so Calvin was planted as a pastor in a French-speaking church of about 500 people. He would preach there four times a week, train candidates for ministry. This is where he began, though, to write. He would revise his institutes, and he began producing commentaries on the Bible. A life-size event, though, while in Strasbourg, he was only there four years, was when he married a widow named Idalette de Bure in 1540. Now, I want to give you his view of marriage because it stands in stark contrast to what we understand marriage to be now. And I just want you to hold on when I read it because it really is kind of sobering. He says this because his friends were trying to encourage him to get married. He says, I am none of those inane lovers who embrace all the vices of those that they are in love with when they are smitten at first sight with a fine figure. This only is the beauty which attracts me. If she is chaste, if not too nice or fastidious, if economical, if patient, if there is hope that she will be interested in my health. Now, we bristle with such a clinical view of marriage. But you've got to remember, this is quite typical in the 16th century. People got married for economic and social reasons, not romantic. And, And they trusted, Calvin, like others, trusted that affection would naturally grow. Within a marriage. And it evidently did, because when she died nine years later, here's what he wrote about her to his friend Veray. He says Although the death of my wife has been exceedingly painful to me, yet I subdue my grief as well as I can. I have been bereaved of the best companion of my life, who, if our lot had been harsher, she would have not only been willing to be the share of my exile and poverty, but even of death. While she lived, she was the faithful helper of my ministry. From her I never experienced the least hindrance. So Calvin is often seen as this person that didn't know how to love. But he he did. It was just a different, as we're going to see in the rest of this, how different that century was from ours. Well, after four years, the city council of Geneva found itself in straits again with theology, and they called for Calvin to come back and to lead in that city. He resisted for 10 months. He resisted going back, and here's why. He says, there is no place under heaven of which I greater dread than going back to Geneva. He had good reason. He knew there would be great opposition there. At the time, Geneva was polluted, polluted with all kinds of moral laxity, civil strife, riots, disorder, little public, public safety. It, there was a scene there was a time in Geneva that people were purposely passing the plague. They, they, they would take garments of people who had the plague and rub it on the door handles of people's homes just to spread the plague. I mean, it, it was a barbaric place and a barbaric time. In fact, among the European towns, Geneva was considered significantly worse. And yet he would return there and begin to preach. Interesting, when he left the first, at the first exile, He was preaching through a book, and he ended on a verse. When he returned, he picked up with the very next verse of the book that he had left, of the verse that he had left. He would serve these churches until his death, and in these these next 24 years of his life, he would preach verse by verse, visit, establish an academy to train ministers, which would eventually become University of Geneva. But, But the population that Calvin could not go out of Geneva... But the population came to Geneva. So from England and Scotland and Germany and Italy and France, the population of Geneva doubled in those years that he was there. In fact, a man by the name of John Knox studied under his hand. In fact, here's what he said about Calvin's church. He said it was the most perfect school of Christ that ever was on earth since the days of the apostles. Knox, of course, would lead a reformation in Scotland. Now, uh, he ended up uh, being a very faithful, strong preacher. There was a dark stain, though, in Calvin's life, and I don't want to speak about him without addressing it, and that is regarding the man Michael uh, Servetus. Uh, He was a Spanish physician and theologian who was a heretic, and it left a very dark stain in in Calvin's life and ministry. Uh, Michael Servetus wrote a book called The Seven Heirs of the Trinity, where he denied the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. Now Calvin was aware of his heretical views as well as much of Europe, and uh, he began to write him, to persuade him uh, to abandon this anti-Trinitarianism. He even sent him a copy of his Institutes. In one letter he said, I neither hate you nor despise you, nor do I wish to persecute you. But I would be hard as iron when I behold you insulting sound doctrine with such great audacity. Well, Servetus had been arrested by the Roman Catholics and condemned to death. He escaped imprisonment in France, and he fled to Geneva. Now, the city magistrates recognized him attending one of Calvin's services. They arrested him, and they tried him, and they found him guilty of blasphemy. The city of Geneva then... The leaders sent out the examination notes of this man to various towns in Europe, Zurich and Basel and the like, to try to draw in the wisdom of others. All agreed that he was guilty of blasphemy. Now, the the Catholics had already, as I said, convicted him and condemned him to die. So did Geneva, and Calvin was part of that a condemnation of death. Now, Calvin argued for a milder form of death, but the city magistrates condemned him to die by being burned at the stake. His participation in this is deeply troubling. It is. There, there's no way around that. Uh, to condemn a man to die for blasphemy. Ironically, when I said this, yeah, well, that's, that'll be for another day. Another day on Calvin. Um, don't you want to know what it is now? <laughs> Ooh, if you could read my mind. Um, I want you to, I want to try to set it in the context. I want to try to understand it. I don't want to remove the stain, but I want to understand it in the context in which it's been given. We have to understand um, a culture by the laws of the culture at that time. Um, blasphemy was punishable by death across Europe. Uh, Other reformers agreed with this condemnation of death. Uh, Queen Mary, or known as Bloody Mary in England, had put hundreds and hundreds of people to death. The St. Bartholomew's Massacre in France, which would occur within 15 years, uh, upwards, some historians think upwards of 30,000 Protestants would be martyred in, in France, Calvinistic martyrs. Um, It was a a difficult time, and so it remained a stain as when I share with you Calvin's last words, uh, you're going to hear echoes of his involvement in this. So it's a stain in his life. He was a flawed man, and this was one of those flaws. In, In fact, it wasn't much long afterwards that Calvin did die. He died young at age 54 on May 27, 1564 at 8 p.m., As mentioned, his health had never been good, but but in the last number of years, he was increasingly confined to his bed. It was said at the end when you would see him in the street, he looked like a walking corpse. He was so emaciated and so weak. Yet you see his steadfast commitment as he testified his last words regarding God's grace. This is what he he had uh, testified. He says, I give thanks to God that taking mercy upon me, or excuse me, that taking mercy on me whom he had created and placed in this world, he not only delivered me out of the deep darkness of idolatry, that he might bring me into the light of his gospel and make me a partaker of the doctrine of salvation of which I am most unworthy. I have no other defense or refuge for salvation than his gratuitous adoption on which my salvation stands alone. With my whole soul, I embrace the mercy he exercised to me in Jesus Christ Atoning for my sins with the merits of his death and passion, that through them my sins are buried, so that in this way he might satisfy for all my crimes and faults and blot them from his remembrance. I must think Servetus was in his mind at that. So that when I shall appear before his face, I may bear his lightness. Now, Theodore Viza, a close friend and the leader of the academy, and actually a biographer, said this regarding the interval of those days before he died. It says he spent in constant prayer. In his sufferings, uh, Calvin, who loved the Psalms, who just quote the Psalms, this one in particular, I was silent, O Lord, because you did this. You, O Lord, crush me, but it is abundantly sufficient for me to know it is from your hand. At death, all of Geneva then wanted to see his body. He, in fact, had it ordered left orders that he would be buried in an unmarked grave, so that no one might venerate or somehow make a uh, place of pilgrimage out of his out of his grave. So, so his life ended at fifty four years of old, never married again. Um, So, what can we learn from his life? Well, I I just want to give a couple. points, perhaps, that I think are timeless truths, and perhaps his life would be a backdrop for these. Uh, God uses, number one, God uses imperfect people to do his perfect work. You know, Calvin is is a clear example of this. He was polarizing. I, I don't know that I would have warmed up to Calvin. I'm convinced he would not have liked me. Um, he, he, was, he was intellectual. He was thorough. He was self-controlled. He was probably off-putting because of his absolute seriousness to life. He was not soft, he wasn't fluffy, didn't look like a man that laughed a ton. Uh, He worked with an excessiveness that I think drove drove him, I'm sure, to an early and and painful death. He maintained this heavy regimen of study, writing, visitation. He would revise his institutes five times. He would write commentaries on every book of the Bible except 2nd sep- and 3rd John and the book of Revelation. Um, he would write over 1,200 letters, all by hand, or dictating them, sending them to enemies, to friends, to people who were persecuting, just acquaintances. He would give pastoral wisdom in these letters. He preached over 2,000 sermons, he would preach up to 10 times a week. Constantly working, not taking care. I I don't know that he would have understood clearly the the need. Well, I I don't think he seemed to draw out that idea of consider the flowers and God's care. He was excessive in his work. He, uh, when urged to work less, he said, what would you have the Lord find me? Idle when he comes? Now that sounds great, but that kind of, that kind of lopsidedness fails to appreciate the, the joys of God and the gratitude that he calls us to have over the gifts that he gives to us. It can be lopsided. Uh, Calvin had an anger issue. He, in fact, wrote to Martin Luther and castigated him by a letter. He said, Luther allows himself to be carried beyond all bounds with his love of thunder, even being sarcastic towards Martin Luther. On his deathbed, he said, my vices have always displeased me, speaking about his anger. So he had a man. He he reconciled, and they called him a great friend. But he could blast off with anger. He was anxious. He was uncertain. So in Calvin, we see this kind of, we see some great strengths that are absolutely unique, and we see some absolute flaws and some real struggles. In fact, Biza, his Friend and biographer said this: Having been a spectator of his conduct for over sixteen years, I have given faithful account both of his life and of his death. And I can now declare to you that in him all men may see a most beautiful example of Christian character, an example which is as easy to slander as it is difficult to imitate. It's amazing that balance there. He's easy to slander because of his weaknesses, and yet his strengths are so remarkable that you can't imitate him. But that's the kind of person he was. And so for us, I mean, when I step back from this, how often we kind of disappoint ourselves from certain tasks the Lord may lead us to because we don't think we have enough or we've got these weaknesses. You know, you realize that God grants all his people strengths, strong strengths, but they each come with an attendant weakness for humility and for balance in your life. We tend to focus on the weaknesses. But we want to look at ourselves in light of God as having both strengths and weaknesses. And they're for us. So so do not count yourself out. It brings greater glory for God when we do great things in spite of our weaknesses. Secondly, God uses the suffering to mold his saints. Suffering is a fundamental part of the flowering of your faith. Suffering is fundamental to you changing into Christ. Uh, Few of us, few of us can compare to the physical suffering he went through. He faced uh, constant bouts of malaria like fevers, intestinal influenza, recurring migraine headaches, tuberculosis, ulcerated veins, kidney stones that left him bleeding tremendously, severe arthritis, acute pain in knees, calves, and feet. Uh, He would spend uh, a number of years, as I've mentioned, uh, latter years in bed. He would have to be carried to the pulpit to preach because he couldn't walk. He suffered emotionally. His wife died, as I said, after nine years. But three children were born. Uh, One was a miscarriage. One was uh, dead at birth. And the other died two weeks later. In fact, he wrote, uh, the Lord has certainly inflicted a bitter wound in the death of our infant son. But here's what he says. Here's the faith that's being forged. But he himself is a father and knows what is good to his children. He set in context of God's sovereignty even the sufferings that he went through. In fact, he says this. He, he has this pastoral balance with suffering as it forges us into Christ's likeness. He says this. Eternal life is promised to us, but it's promised to the dead. We are told of the resurrection of the blessed, but meantime we're involved in its corruptions. We are declared to be just, and sin dwells within us. We hear that we're blessed, but meantime we're overwhelmed with untold miseries. We are promised an abundance of good things, but we often are hungry and thirsty. God proclaims he will come to us immediately, but seems to be dead to our cries. And he says, Faith is therefore rightly called the substance of things which are still the objects of hope. How do you view suffering? Many of you are suffering. How do you view it? How do you understand it in light of God's sovereign hand? Are you able to maintain the understanding that God is a father sovereign over all suffering? So suffering is not random. I mean, folks, if you want to worry in this life, then remove the sovereign peace of God from your life and let suffering be random. Let suffering be just happenstance. But to know that it's guided under the hand of a father who loves you causes suffering now to be understood in the context of development and not just haphazard treatment. Thirdly, God uses preaching as the primary means to declare to you the glory of the Son. Calvin found, and remember now, he was coming in the context of the Catholic Church that would teach that the interpretation of the Scriptures had to be done by bishops and cardinals and priests and and, and councils. And Calvin saw the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, how it's absolutely trustworthy and sufficient for all things. He wrote this, and how we could never grow, and how we can never grow apart from the Word of God, as it declares Christ to us. He said, whoever, therefore, would desire to persevere in the uprightness and integrity of life, Let them learn to exercise themselves daily in the study of the word of God. For whenever a man despises or neglects instruction, he easily falls into carelessness and stupidity, and all the fear of God vanishes from his mind. So Calvin would teach that all that God has chosen to reveal himself through the scriptures, primarily through what the scriptures teach about the Son of God, that as the scriptures reveal the glory of Christ, so we learn of God. He would preach, as I said, every, he, 10 times a week. He would preach every Sunday morning, every Sunday afternoon. He would do the New Testament, two to three verses in the morning, about 30 minutes. He would do about uh, a, a psalm every afternoon. And he would preach every day of the week, every other week. He would also preach on Friday afternoons. He would do the Old Testament during the week. Because all he did was to preach. Because the scriptures have been given to us by God to reveal Christ, which leads us to God. Now, now he didn't think that just reading the scriptures was sufficient for us. He knew the role of the Spirit. Much of the Institutes speaks about the role of the Spirit in opening our eyes to these things. In other words, I can't convince you that the scriptures are true. And no magisterium or no council can convince you. The reason alone from church or man cannot convince you. It has to be the Spirit of God. Listen to how clear he is on this. He says, the testimony of the Spirit is superior to all reason. In other words, in revealing the Word to be God's Word. He says, for us, God alone is sufficient witness of himself in his Word. So also the Word will never gain credit in the hearts of men till it be confirmed by the internal Spirit. It is necessary, therefore, that the same Spirit who has spoken by the mouths of the prophets should penetrate our hearts to convince us that they have been faithfully delivered the oracles, which were not entrusted to them, but by God. For though the Scripture wins our reverence by its internal majesty, it never seriously affects us until it's confirmed by the Spirit on our hearts. That's an amazingly important understanding. That you know, People read the Bible and they tell me, I love the Bible. It's a beautiful book. It's a glorious book. The Spirit has to open our eyes to the truth of the Scriptures. Otherwise... It doesn't have a lasting effect. What is your view of the Scriptures? What is your call for the Spirit of God? When you, when you go to read the Bible, do you understand, if the Spirit does not illuminate my mind to the truth, it will have a little effect on me. This is why we are Trinitarians. God has spoken, given the Son, revealed Him in the Bible, and the Spirit confirms it. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit is revealing Himself to us. And apart from that, we cannot know Him. We can only create God's. But we cannot understand the true God apart from the word applied by the Spirit. So when you read your Bibles, if you're not reading your Bibles, you will just create gods forever. Scriptures will only give you the truth of God. God has chosen to reveal himself in the Son as recorded in the Scriptures. I cannot encourage you enough to be people of the book. Okay, the fourth thing is that, and I just want to touch on this only because Calvinism takes such a rap regarding predestination, but God calls us to humility. I I want you to, Calvin is often uh, maligned as only being a man who spoke about predestination. I do want to say to you that in the first copy of the Institutes, he passes over with little reference to predestination. In the catechism that he wrote in 1545, he doesn't even mention predestination. He spoke more about prayer in the Institutes than he does predestination. And he says the problem with predestination is not the doctrine, but it's we who bring to the table an overdeveloped curiosity. He says this, We should never scrutinize those things which the Lord has left concealed, nor neglect those things which he has openly exhibited, lest we be condemned for excessive curiosity on the one hand or for ingratitude on the other. In other words, we spend a lot of time talking about the things that God hasn't written about rather than thanking God for much of what he has talked about. Okay, then, then fifth, God calls us to minister <clears throat> in the midst of conflict. Uh, th- this is probably where I, I found my greatest appreciation for Calvin. Um, you know, the manners of the 16th century were, were rough. They were very rough. When he was called back to Geneva, <clears throat> let me give you a little bit of details in this town. Of course, you know, in the, in the 16th century, th- there were no medicines, there were no uh, doctors as we understand it, there's no communication like we understand it. I mean, it was a very, very rough, rough place. Morals were loose, um, riots were common. Uh, turning to the sword to settle conflict was there. There were constant struggles and conflict that he had with, with politics. In terms of sexual laxness, Uh, The law allowed men to have one mistress, men one, not two. You were allowed to have one mistress in the town. And uh, in fact, Geneva was worse than the rest because they set up a quarter, a a section of the city where women would just be to prostitute themselves. And they were given a regularized dress so that you could identify them to conduct your business. That was the town that uh, that he was working in. Every city had brothels, but not like Geneva. And uh, he would preach moral reform. Well, people obviously didn't like that. He was under constant pressure. They made jokes about him. They said his wife died of boredom. I mean, he was, a really, he was the butt of a lot of jokes. In fact, a number of times, the people were outside his house with muskets, firing them into the air, wanting to haul him and throw him into the, into the river. I mean, he was threatened greatly. They were shouting at him during preaching. They had called the police to stay at the church when he preached. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. But here's what he says about his commitment to working in the midst of conflict. He says, Although it was a very troublesome province, the thought of departing it never entered my mind. For I consider myself placed in that position by God, like a sentry at his post. This I can testify, that not a day passed in which I did not long for death ten times over. But as for leaving that church... To remove elsewhere? Such a thought never entered my mind. That's commitment. In the midst, He understands that ministry is always in the midst of conflict. In fact, the Libertines were a group of people within Geneva. This is kind of a classic example of how he dealt with conflict and what he lived in. They stressed liberty in the Christian faith, liberty in terms of sexual liberty. Uh, they argued that the communion of sense the communion of saints meant that they were able to, to have sex with one another's wives. That was their argument. They practiced adultery, and they expected to participate at the table, the communion table. At the height of the conflict, this Philibert uh, Berthelier, a prominent libertine, was excommunicated because of his well-known promiscuity and forbidden from the table. But through underhanded influence, he was... Uh, He swung the city council over to override the decision so he could come to the table. And so he came to the church with swords drawn because he was going to take communion from Calvin. Well, Calvin descended from the pulpit. He stood in front of the communion table, and here's what he said. He said, these hands you may crush, these arms you may lop off, my life you may take, my blood is yours, you may shed it, but you shall never force me to give holy things to the profaned, and dishonor the table of my God. Now, Bisa, his friend, was there and said the sacred ordinance was celebrated with profound silence and under solemn awe as if the deity himself had been visible among them. There's a quote, as long as the church stays indoors and preaches and worships quietly in her corner, she will be left in peace. But when she affects private lives and vested interests, here is the boil that will not be touched. It was conflict. Folks, when we minister, and, and I, you look at the... I, I, I love this because it puts our own culture in context. While our culture is clearly descending, think of what he preached in. We don't even come close to it. We have law. We have order. I mean, our country, in comparison to the Geneva of his day is, I mean, we are in great position compared to that. Now, that doesn't mean it's great. I'm just trying to give you a point of perspective. So we minister in the midst of conflict. I mean, to be able to live for Christ outwardly, we have to be a people that expect it and not be intimidated by it. Well, when you hear all this, and, and you're kind of left as I am, like just overwhelmed at Calvin as kind of a towering figure, but with clear flaws. What drove him? How do we understand it? Well, this is my last point. And, and this is kind of where I want to bring it to an end. What makes him him? And, and how can that be adopted by us? Well, central to Calvin and needs to be central to us is that he considered the majesty of God, the very glory of God, is preeminent over all things. Calvin saw that it was the first and the direction and the ultimate aim of all of his ministry. He says this, The thing at which I chiefly aimed and for which I most diligently labored was that the glory of God's goodness and justice might shine conspicuous and that the virtue and blessings of your Christ might be fully displayed. That's the key. That's the answer, is he lived for the glory of God, that the glory of God was first, it was preeminent, and everything else worked toward that end. That was his greatest goal. Now, you see this, even what we do as evangelicals with our salvation, uh, in that letter, so this cardinal, this Roman Catholic cardinal, when Calvin was banished from Geneva to Strasbourg for four years. He wrote a letter trying to woo the Catholics to come back into the fold. And he talked about how the church was the mother of salvation. And in his letter, he was making much about salvation. And here's how Calvin responded to him. He says, Your zeal for a heavenly life is a zeal. So your zeal for salvation is a zeal which leaves men entirely devoted to himself and does not even by one expression, arouse him to sanctify the name of God. It is not very sound theology to confine a man's thoughts so much to himself and not to set before him as the prime motive of his existence, zeal to show forth the glory of God. For we are born, first of all, for God and not for ourselves. In other words, even a precious truth like salvation can be so emphasized as to make God second to that. Salvation is for God, leading us to God. So here, our our modern church can be challenged in how we can focus on the salvation of our souls from hell, apart from giving glory to God, who has brought this salvation to us in Christ. That's why the purpose of the church is the way it is. What's the purpose of our church? Love God's glory. That's the first thing we have. In fact, that, that's why it's leading us next week into the study of Isaiah. We're going to look at Isaiah you know, through the fall. I w- want to encourage you to begin reading it right now. I- I- Isaiah speaks to God's glory in Christ, our own sinfulness and brokenness, needing the Spirit to return to God, so it'll be a good lead. Well, let's just, Let me just pray, um, begin, uh, I'll lead us in prayer. Considering God's glory as the ultimate aim of our lives Leads us to be a people of steel and um, Christ like character. So let me begin, and um, an elder is going to close us in prayer in just a few minutes. I would ask you if you choose to pray that you would pray briefly and you would pray out loud. And this is a time of corporate prayer, so we're really speaking on behalf of the church, and um, whether it be petition or praise. Father, I do thank you and praise you for the grace that you give. Uh, to men and women throughout the history of the church. We are thankful to you for that grace and how it encourages us to look to you. And so, Father, we look to you now, and, and we look to you for grace that we would love your glory above all the things that you have given to us as displays of your glory. Father, give us eyes to see you as preeminent and glorious.